Could you please pronounce your name correctly for me? I'm Ian Knowles. Now, you run a, a school of iconography, and there's so many questions about that right off the bat, but let's like go back a little bit. Like, How did you even get into doing icons in the first place? Well, you have to go back to when I was 18, and I, my Christian faith has, has been very strong since my early teens. I also have I've loved uh, art and craft and that sort of stuff since I was a little kid. I think I, I, I think one of my earliest memories is I'd made this church out of grocery boxes, and it was bigger than I was because I was about seven, six, I think something like that, and couldn't get that onto the onto the bus to bring it home. I just remember being heartbroken that I couldn't take this church that I'd made and all this bit. So. Art and my faith has has always sort of nestled together one way or the other. And when I was 18, I went to Greece to visit a friend, and she took me to see some of the local churches in Athens, which is where she was from. And we went to this tiny little ancient Byzantine church. I think it was something like the 10th century, something like that. I can't remember exactly. and. Is one of those hot July Athens days, you know, sweltering hot outside, really bright sun. Go into this cool oasis. And, you know, I still remember the shaft of sunlight coming from the dome, the, the smoke from the candles that were burning in front of the icons just catching in the, in the, in the light. And, there were these icons, which I couldn't really see because one, the church was dark, you know, that bright shaft of sunlight, but no interior lighting. And secondly, the icons themselves were smeared in soot from countless candles being caught by the, the oil that they were um, varnished with. But what you saw were these silhouettes and glinting were these numinous figures. And you just, I felt this divine presence. And the, the, these images were somehow resonant with that. And, you, you know, you just tuned into the sound. It's a bit like being able to tune into to sound you were tuning into a divine presence, and these images were resonant with this sound. So that was it. There, after that, I'd fallen in love. It was just then the love of my life, you know. And then, what did you do like throughout your career? So, have you been have you been in the arts or in religion throughout your life? Because you're no longer eighteen. Just to be clear. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, life takes many twists and turns, and for a long time, it was just a, a hobby. And I did do some study with somebody called Igor Sondler, who was a, a Jesuit priest, and he was a very eminent iconographer, and um, not just a practitioner, but a theorist. So he was in Paris. I did that, did some study with him. But when I was in my early 40s, so about 15 years ago, 16 years ago, I was fortunately in a position to be able to do an apprenticeship with Aidan Hart, who's probably the most eminent 
iconographer of the English-speaking world. And I was his first apprentice. He's had others since, but I was his first apprentice and did this apprenticeship based on sort of 20 years of dabbling in it. And then that's been my professional life since then. I then went off to the Holy Land on a on a bit of a punt, really. So a friend of mine said their local church was wanting some restoration work done, and could I come and paint something? And I said, well, okay, let's go. So I went over there and um, ended up there for 10 years, more than 10 years, and then founded the Bethlehem Icon School, 2010, which I now run as an online school from where I am now here in Italy. But at that point, it was actually in Bethlehem at the Emmanuel Monastery, which is a Greek Catholic monastery. We then set up uh, a sort of company called the Bethlehem Icon Center to really house the school. And the idea then was to train local Palestinians in iconography so it could become an indigenous art form again. Because I really think the Holy Land is where iconography began. So not only have you got that spiritual resonance, but you've actually got historically probably where it all burst into life. Sadly, that came to an end in well, 2019. I mean, the Icon Center has been taken over by new management, and they've gone in a very different sort of more nationalistic direction. But I've continued the school, and actually through um, through COVID, I was due to do a, an in-person course at the Royal West of England Academy in, in Bristol. That was cancelled at the last minute. COVID burst. And I just offered it as a freebie online, you know, trying to help everybody out of a appalling sort of depressing situation. And out of that, it, it sort of hit a nerve. And I found I was actually quite adapt at that medium. So we now have um, the Academy course in icon painting. Um, we have well over 50 students. Of those, probably about 30, 40, 40 meet uh, every week on a termly basis. We're about to come to the end of it and we'll move into something else now. But So it's really quite exciting taking people from all over the world, from back in Bethlehem, people in Syria, uh, people in Australia, people in the United States, people in Germany, and bringing iconography to life as a living art form and as part of a vocation. Right. Some of the listeners might think like, oh, 40 or 50, that's not a lot of students. But like my father teaches iconography and he can only max out at like four to five students at any given moment because it it's a very hands-on, one-on-one, intimate thing to be even taught it, much less do it yourself. So like you can't do like a class of, you know, 20 students or more in, in a thing because they just won't get enough attention and enough understanding of what they're doing and why. So for the listeners, that's actually a pretty big set of people. It is, and especially if you think it's, it's such a niche art form because I only teach egg tempera. So, you know, that's possibly the most demanding painterly technique. Do you grind your own pigment and everything? I, I do from time to time. You know, I'm just lazy. So I have to put my hands up and say, you know, that, you know, you have to be realistic here. I'd rather just get on with the painting. But from time to time, I do grind my own pigments. I make my own boards from time to time, you know, the whole continuous process. Okay, but let's get back to the, yeah. the thing we talked about before we started recording. So let's get this on the record. 
I, because of my father's teaching me, he, I refer to it as icon writing because he's very pompous and calls it hagiography and all that kind of stuff. Okay. And I understand that a lot of people don't call it that. So like, what's the debate? Why is it even a debate? Why can't they come up with a single vocabulary for this? That's a good question. I mean, when I first did iconography, then I would talk about writing. And I think, especially in the English-speaking world and the non-Greek Orthodox world, you know, iconography is very strange. It's esoteric. It's like it looks odd, but there's something really profound to it. And if you have a, a sort of deep spiritual sensitivity, you 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 sort of want to engage with these things. And and the thing that's drawn you in is the fact that they are so different and distinctive and it and it's so special. So you want a word that is describing this sort of unique experience. It's not like painting. This is something different. But I changed my mind. And like quite a few professional iconographers, you know, people for whom this is their life, their bread and butter, it's, it's not just a nice retreat that they do or something they do in their retirement. This is how they feed themselves. When you're at that level, you, you strip away a lot of the pretentiousness. Or not pretentious. Well, yeah, sometimes it is pretension, to be honest. But you... You take away some of the froth and you actually are living something day by day. And it's, it's so much more real and profound precisely because it's so ordinary. Well, the thing that I keep thinking about is like the act of doing it is technically painting. Yeah, you, you know, that, I use a I brush. Totally I That's don't right. use, use brush. the paint. You use paint. Like yep. it's painting. But the sort of the concept or the intention behind the creation of it is that you are writing a story. And in some ways, like you could sit back and say, well, technically that's that's every creative process. Mm -hmm. We're all writing stories. So like I'm a photographer, so I'm visually writing stories. I'm just using uh, the you know, light sensitive material to capture that kind yeah. of thing instead of a painting process. So like it's that question of like, are you know, what's I guess sort of like the thing? Are, is it more important, the story that's being told or is it the process? Both. And I think... And you see, this is a very, very important point. The whole point of Christianity, the whole point, is that God is in matter. So matter matters. It's the most down-to-earth religion you could possibly have. Because it's not about escaping matter. It's not about transcendence to another consciousness. It's about being at home in your own flesh. And it's about flesh being redeemed. So the resurrection, where matter is then taken to a whole new level, it's blown apart, it's upside down, it's inside out. You have a man who walks through a door, and yet somebody can put their hand in his side. Matter is malleable, it's plastic stone, mountains, everything suddenly becomes fluid and what's permanent and enduring emerges through that. 
which is the presence of, of truth, of beauty. And this sort of refashions everything. Iconography is the art of that reality. That was incredibly profound. I'm just trying to take it all in. So, okay. I, I, there's nothing in that I believe I could s probably intelligently say anything about. <laughs> well, anyway, that's that's a bit of a high-minded take on it. Very, yeah. But you have to say that to understand what you do when you pick up a brush and a bit of rock and you grind it into into color. What are you doing? What's really the process? It's precisely because... Okay, if you think about it, there's resonances of God's presence in creation. There wouldn't be stuff if there wasn't creation. So, I mean, based in keeping in mind everything you're saying is based in the idea of of faith in a religion. Yep, yep. I'm not. I mean, I'm just talking straight from as I see it. Just as any atheist would presume that they can just impose their belief system on everybody else, I'm doing the same thing. Unapologetically, okay. if you want to get on the inside of iconography, you've got no other option. So I'm not going to dumb it down to some faithless context uh, because it doesn't do justice to what, what we're doing. So back on track. So the, the vision that, that faith brings to the material world is that, for example, when you see a snowflake, the, the geometric unity of that composition is breathtaking in its, in its beauty. The order at the very core of every single thing has a transcendence to it. It's, it's beautiful whether it's a cell, whether it's the honeycomb, whether it's a cactus plant, these rhythms and patterns that hold everything together are, from a Christian point of view, philosophical point of view, as it were, the, the echoes of, of God's creative will, power, energy, force, however you want to express it. So when you're doing religious art in general, but iconography in particular, you are creating art filled with that resonance. The, the whole point is, it is matter. It is a brush. It is earthly. It is literally down to earth. And you're blowing it apart by breathing into it this, this vision of what it's really all about. So one of the reasons why I, I talk about painting and, and I really become more and more uncomfortable of talking of this sort of essay I'm writing. It, it's a sort of docetism. It's as though, oh, well, we don't do with matter. We're, we're better than that. You know, we do spirituality, not mucky paint. Yes, we do. That's the whole point. Matter matters. So, you know, get off your high stool and get your hands dirty. You know, the best way of doing iconography is, as you rightly said, grind your own pigments. Get the stuff on your hands. All right. So I will take it as a summation of that, that you're of the painting, not writing camp at this particular juncture. <laughs> I think that's fair. Yep. Yep. Okay, that's, good. A, that's a good okay. summary. Yep. <laughs> But but okay, well, taking what you just said though, like 
it's going to sound, and I apologize if this sounds like almost like blasphemous or whatever. No but problem. Go for the, it. Like, can an icon be done without a, the religious component? Well, if you don't have a religious component, you've got no icon. You know, if you take Jesus out of it, who are you going to paint? Well, but I, I'm I, like, I'm imagining some artist because I mean it's been done, but like people, like there's that there's that hard balance of like. If you paint a, a story of religion, so you know, I'm thinking through some of the you know the you know, passions of Christ, yep. like different sort of things that have been painted. Okay, what what differentiates them from being an icon versus being a painting? Like, so like, why is one deemed one versus the other kind of thing? So like, basically, can they be separated or are they always together? Ah, okay, that's a slightly different question because if you're talking about take the religion out of iconography. It doesn't make sense because religion is the theme, the subject, the process, and quite possibly, but not necessarily, the individual doing it. Though, even if you don't have faith, it's about a human person wrestling with issues of faith. Even if you're trying to block out the fact that it's faith and you're just trying to do a mind copy. Okay, but it's still faith. If you take religious art in general and then say, well, how does iconography relate to the wider world of religious art or, say, Christian art, that then becomes a very, very nuanced question. Now, some people take the line, oh, iconography is just, like, totally different. Well, it's got to, it's got to have gold backgrounds and sil or or silver inlay or whatever. Well, some you know, things, you know, and it, coverings, it, yeah. it and it's a style, and you'll get some people who are really very very aggressive. It's what we call the icon police on Facebook. You know, art it's got to be done this way. This is an icon. This isn't really very dogmatic. I understand why they're like that, but I think often that comes from a sort of militancy rooted in a denominational identity. So push that to one side. I would still maintain that actually there is a very clear definition of what iconography is. Do tell. It's what's its purpose. Its purpose is to be art of the liturgy. So... It's like church architecture is a very particular set of styles. And you can copy it if you want to make a restaurant, for example. But, you know, really that, you know, it's church architecture that you've pinched and, and using it for another purpose. There's something integral to the way in which artists work for a context, an airport, for example be a good example of that or a railway station you know you a hospital there's a style that suits the purpose and i think certainly when it becomes religious context there are styles that really suit the context now some people try and blow that apart and you get some architecture for example in some places which is brutalist and all the rest of it i I'm a traditionalist. I'm, you know, I'm just conservative about these things. British, conservative, and I like beauty. And I mean, that's a bit of a sort of combination, you know, that I do believe there is an objective standard of beauty. 
I'd like to think there is, but I have no proof either way of that. I just take a little kid on top of a mountain and at sunset, and they tell you that's beautiful. That's objective for me. You can then pass it down on on some esoteric level, but it we know it, we feel it. Uh, As I do. I do quite often, yes. <laughs> yeah, and then there's gray areas, and that's fun, and we have to pause and think and engage, and that's good. But I think when it comes to the liturgical space, you want something which really serves the community in a very straightforward way. So you want art that is clearly beautiful, clearly transcendent, not just utilitarian and and, and that sort of thing, which would be some modern Catholic churches, for example, which I think is a mistake. But sorry, I'm going into a, another no, no, it's good. It's good. I mean, the the thing that I was thinking about, though, when I asked about, like, can you separate them? Like, I guess my question would be, like, to continue on with that train mm. of thought was, like, can a person who is an atheist, I'm so bad, atheist, agnostic, yeah. what's the ones that just don't believe? Yeah, uh, agnostic. Agnostic. Okay, so they just don't believe in anything. Can they do iconography? To an extent, yeah. You know, they can copy. Okay. A photocopier in an inanimate machine can copy. Somebody who doesn't believe it can copy. But I think where it begins to be a matter of, of some importance is when you're trying to be creative in the way in which you, you are portraying realities. I mean, some people take a traditional model and copy it and tweak bits. Mm, okay. But the more and more independent you are, in the sense you're not copying, you're really being organically creative. At that point, the depth of your own understanding of the Christian faith and your engagement with it really begins to matter. So if you think of, if you're, if you're doing a, a portrait, a normal portrait, there's a profound difference between a photograph and painting from life. It's exactly that contrast. When you paint with faith, like when I'm painting the Virgin Mary, I'm doing some drawing last night, you know, I'm talking to her because she's there. I'm, I'm trying to capture something from her in what I'm doing, and I profoundly believe she's there, sort of willing the the form to take place. It's a sort of mystical process in that sense. So how can you paint from life when you don't think anybody's there? Well, okay, keeping in mind, my knowledge of icons is probably pretty limited because most of it comes from my father. So it's okay. pretty probably one-sided. But the my, my understanding was is that the sort of the truest, most pure icons were copies. And I've continually asked my father over the decades that he's been doing it to say like, well, why can't you just take the sort of the skills, the knowledge and the understanding of like the colors, the layouts, the compositions, mm -hmm. the techniques and stuff and in, in and sort of make them more contemporary. So mm -hmm. sort of involve your, yourself more in the expression than a, a faithful rendering of a of a historical icon. Yeah. So I, I'm I'm getting the sense that you differ in opinion from my father on this. Yeah. I think when you are a hobbyist, then and there's 
that is not said as um, in any way disparaging, but to say if that's your level, that's where you're at, then you need to be very conservative in your treatment of your subject matter because the icon embodies the faith of the church. And when you start playing around with it, you can very soon deconstruct that faith into, into a mess. So you do need a theological training. I did theology at Oxford, for example, and have had ministerial training and things. So you do need a theological grounding to start with if you're going to start being creative with the icon. And I think you also need to have enough experience of living with the icon as a liturgical reality to be able to breathe its spirit. And I think especially for those of us in the West who aren't, haven't been rooted in a normal, regular experience of a living iconographic context, like you sometimes, not always, get in, in, in the Orthodox Church. A lot of Russian Orthodox churches, for example, are very influenced by naturalism, and, and iconography as such has become quite weakened by that. So I'm, I'm hesitant to sort of make a sort of generalization here. But if you look at the revival of iconography, people like Ospensky, Cordis in Greece, you'll, you find that there's something else going on here. That, that really has a philosophy of the form of the icon. Now, there's debate about what that should be. It's a theological, theoretical um, debate, and there is a lot of disagreement on that level. But if you're not able to enter into that discussion, you certainly aren't ready to be able to be creative, and that's going to be for most students. It's fair, yeah. I mean, basically, like learn learn the fundamentals before you try and sort of reinvent them, kind of thing. Exactly, or be creative in applying them. Because one of the things, and that actually, you just touched on something quite important. Where's the creativity in iconography? It is sort of a question, but like one of the other things that I'm always wondering about is like there are so many like um, while yeah, how do I explain this? The, there are so many different sort of schools or camps or styles mm -hmm. of iconography, and none of them are, we'll call like the absolute, yet each of them believe that they are the absolute. And so like, as a non-practitioner myself, like, like everybody has like a style or a time period or a faith or mm. whatever that they sort of like choose to depict kind of thing. But like none of them are like, there's no way we can prove like which was the first, which was the whatever kind of thing. Or can we? Am I wrong on that? Oh, let's just, let's just have a little, little break here. Iconography is 1,500 years old. It's the oldest continuously still being practiced art form, a style, a form, I cannot say, a very niche form of art. Over that period of time, it's been in Greece, Russia, the Holy Land, Egypt, Ethiopia, Armenia, etc., etc., etc. It's been through persecutions, uh, for example, the iconoclastic controversy, which lasted 150 years in the in the Byzantine Empire, uh, 
It's been through the oppression of Soviet Russia. It's been through the Islamic domination of the ancient Christian lands where iconography was practiced and, 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 and so on, like the Holy Land, like Constantinople, like Turkey. So it's gone through an, an enormous series of, of pressures, of influences, of challenges. And in that time, rooted itself time and time again in these different cultures. And those cultural elements have shaped it, fashioned it, and it's, it's so rich in its variety. So it's not about saying, oh, well, this is the original iconography. It's more about saying, is it true to the fundamental principles? And that's the challenge. So if we're now talking about a modern style of iconography, it's the contemporary iconography. It's not about saying, well, what style can I copy? It's about what are those fundamental principles that I can embody in a contemporary medium. And there's some very, very interesting things going on at the moment. And in Greece, there's a guy called George Cordis. And he is one of the most prolific artists in Greece. Uh, he's a professor at Thessaloniki University, and he's also a phenomenal iconographer and has developed his own very distinctive style. You immediately know this is a George Cordis piece of work. And the overlap between his secular work and his church work is very extensive. So it's like a Byzantine style in a contemporary idiom, which for some people is too much. It's so far away from the tradition that people are used to that they just can't swallow it. It, it sort of sticks in the visual throat. But for other people, the, how can I put it? The, the, the experience blows iconography right open because suddenly you've got something that is fresh and energetic and full of life. And relatable. Yeah. And you could go to, for example, if you go to Russia, which I think is this really conservative, you know, sort of, you know, everything's got to be painted like as it was done in Novgorod in the 15th century or something. People like Father Zenon, Archimander Zenon, prolific iconographer, done masses of work, very influential. His style is very close, for example, to as a much earlier era, like the, the, the sort of 6th century, Romanesque work in the West. It, it's, it's, it's very free, very creative, masterful, and transcendently beautiful. You know, it's there you, I would say that with his work, I've never heard any reservations, nobody questioning whether this is a good icon. Because he's, he's maybe more within the, the expectations, whereas George Cortes is, is really pushing things. But you look at Russian iconography, traditional Russian iconography, Rublev, people like that, and you look at traditional Greek iconography, people like Pantsilimos, you know, they're both actually reflecting their roots. So the Greek style, which is much more dramatic, organic, um, and, and, and solid, and the Russian, which is more ethereal, translucent, um, melted forms. 
So two very different traditions, both of them producing contemporary iconographers of real masterly skill. And that's very exciting for an art form which 100 years ago had almost been lost. And that's what people forget. You know, it had, it had been reduced down to a little trickle, uh, and now it is a roaring river full of life. Well, with what you're saying there, so like each culture has its own sort of uh, aspect or elements that have sort of continually evolved and sort of, you know, continually changed the intention and the styles and all this kind of stuff. I wonder about like, where are sort of, I guess it's the question is sort of multifaceted, but like in traditional format versus contemporary format, like mm -hmm. what's the proper place for them to be displayed because I, mean, I know originally they were often done for the church then at one point they were done for the home as a sort of a representation of the church in the home and then now of course they're in museum collections and then of course and to a certain extent you can even find them in art galleries now for sale so like yeah. what what kind of like what's your perspective on like where's the appropriate place for them to be uh, I guess both at, like the historical ones, should they be in museums or should they not? And, and should they be in churches or private collections or, you know, where, what's their place hmm. in the world these days? Well, that's an interesting question. I don't want to be dogmatic, but what's an icon? Where does an icon work? Where does it resonate? You know, I talked about resonances. So you, you want to appreciate what an icon is. You want to be able to appreciate the resonance that's deeply embedded in it. The icon has emerged from and is ideally designed for the liturgical context. So, for example, if you want to hear Palestrina, you go and listen to it in a church, in a Gothic cathedral. That's where it works its best. Now you can put it in a concert hall and you can record it and you can play it in your front room. But the experience of that music only really comes into its own in that context. So if you want to really appreciate the resonances at every level of this art, it needs to be in its proper context. And that's not just a church. If it's a Russian icon, it needs to be in a Russian church. It's a Greek icon. It needs to be in a Greek church because they're rooted in the earth. They're rooted in the realities of those cultures. So, for example, if you want to understand, say, I don't know, Andy Warhol, if you display him in an, I don't know, an African village, for example, the experience is going to be very different than if it's in a New York art gallery. The resonances are just different. Iconography is, is culturally rooted. It's art of a particular culture and a particular place. And all art is, potent, is really of a particular time and place. Now, some of it transcends that more easily than others. But if you really want to understand that art, you, you want to understand the artist, where it's come from, what it was intended for. The story behind the backstory helps it come alive. So even if you go, for example, to the, the National Gallery in London and they've got a Caravaggio, they will give a talk to help you understand what you're looking at. Right. I mean, but what I'm thinking about is like, 
I know there are lots of icons that have been taken, like, gosh, what are they called? The 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 triptychs that are often behind the the altar. Yeah, there's a name for them. What's the name? Riridos. Thank you. They're they're often taken out of the context mm. of the church and then put into exhibitions and, yep. and put in museums and stuff like this. Does that? I mean, how do you feel about that? I guess. Well, I think there's a couple of things. One, it means that they're preserved, and often these are very very fragile. So you leave them in the in a in a damp church, and they're not going to be there for very much longer anyway. So practically practically speaking, it's it's the best of a bad job. The other part of that is also. Quite often, if it's in a church, or, or you know, they're not accessible, visually speaking, because they're high up or in a sanctuary, and and it's difficult to get close to really see them. So there is a real value in having them accessible. So you know, I'm not closing the door on the the role of the museum. I would say, when they're I mean, I've had icon exhibitions, for example, or been in the the best context for such an exhibition is a church because it's resonating with the environment. And the best of those was actually in a little Anglican church in Orr in Canterbury, where the organizer had built a temporary iconostasis in this sort of, I think, 12th century church. So it, it was be they were being sort of caressed to 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 feel at home so you could begin to to appreciate them authentically the worst one is you know you've got a modern church building where you just slap all these icons around thinking that they're all going to be you know oh wow it's religious so it all works it's very weak poor management really and an understanding of, of what you're trying to do so to me, i suppose there's degrees but i think there's a very interesting story the the great icons by Rublev, like the Trinity icon and so forth, are all housed in the Tretyakov Gallery in Moscow. And during the Soviet era, because this was seen as the historical people's art, so it was not about being religious, it was about the history of the people, so that's Soviet era stuff. So they had these great icons displayed, and you'd have all these ladies coming up and making the sign of the cross and, and turning the museum into a church. So one of the other nice things about this, I think, is the icon is far more powerful, that resonance, when it's the icons are really true to themselves. You put them in a museum and it transforms that into a sort of church. So it, it doesn't have to all be one way. Well, I mean, and then like, you know, pushing that forward into contemporary stuff, like they're, you know, traditionally they had these roles, you know, in the church and then potentially even in the home. But these days, I feel like I see a lot more of it almost as a commodity. Like I see people producing them and selling them. Like, is that even legitimate? Should they be sold? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I mean, I sell my work. How else do I feed myself? I mean, basically... Well, traditionally, it was monks, so they didn't well, have to. Well, no, it to. wasn't. Uh, there was a period of time when monks would do it, but the monks would charge money. It wasn't done for free. Okay. The monks are very worldly wise when it comes to money. The, 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 the idea that, oh, it's religious, so you all do it for free and all that. Oh, gosh, it's a, it's a, it's a nonsense. It's a, actually, then becomes a work of injustice and exploitation. I could say that about all artwork, but uh, go on. Uh, exactly. But, you know, the number of times people say, oh, well, it's for, ch for the church. 
as though you suddenly got to supposed to live on bread and water so that this wealthy swanky church can have this wonderful piece of art and not have to pay for it that's injustice that's exploitation agreed in all ways shape and form and a form of spiritual abuse you know using religious sentiment to squeeze money out of somebody else's pocket because you can so you know I, it's one of those things i think people tiptoe around a bit you know but but honestly if it's a living art form you know if it's not this is where the hobbyist gets in the way because so many you know mrs so and so who'd done her iconography class for 20 years and actually is quite a good little painter produces these icons for the local church which they pay her $200 for which is a lot of money for her and oh we've put them in the church but they, you know are they really good enough you know to be in public worship like in a cathedral or is it oh well they're holy so you know they're holy people so all oh, this all just is wonderful uh, well i love that discussion so like because i'm in sort of the the you know fine art gallery exhibitions museums and 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 sort of photography industry that's my like industry right but you just said like things like something that's good enough like so what what constitutes something being of the level of let's say being appropriately done for a church or a cathedral like what's the difference between a hobbyist version and somebody and a work that should that is sort of appropriate for those settings okay when i say hobbyist i'm not saying a non-professional couldn't produce work of the right standard that's important to, to say that what is the right standard well you need to understand your subject so you're not painting blind you need to be able to use a brush i know that sounds sort of basic but you know the number of icons that i've seen in english churches where there's these heavy blocky lines there's no elegance there's no finesse i'm sorry but that's just not good enough is if i if i give you an example you know in spain there was that famous story of the restoration of some some painting a mrs mrs pious lady of the parish was let loose Oh, no, yeah, we all agree that that was a horrible exactly. rendition of a But actually, of a thing. it's sort of similar to that, where because somebody is a bit of an artist, a bit of a painter, you know, they're let loose on the visual space. Now, part of part of the problem in the West is our understanding of the liturgical space. I think is very poor. You look at the great cathedrals of the Middle Ages. There was a profound understanding of how you could shape the liturgical space in a transcendent and effective and let's face it enduring way you know the cathedrals of 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 europe are still visited by millions because they work there is something transcendently beautiful about these buildings so it's quite possible to to produce work of exceptional standards and to know that you've done it in the west because of the influence of things like the reformation which was an iconoclastic movement that actually denied the sacredness of the visual as a medium for communion with god so you whitewash the walls you have no images 
because it's all interior and, and dematerialized. That's the first thing. So we actually discovered matter. We, we broke it. We, we went into a period of deliberate ignorance in terms of religious space and, its, and, its, and how it works. Secondly, we then had the revolution in terms of the spoken word because people could read. So you look at what happened in the churches. It all became about books, the Book of Common Prayer and all this sort of stuff. And if you want to look at the way in which people lost their faith in, in Northern Europe, look at the way in which words and books came to dominate the experience of transcendence. So that's a topic in itself, but I think this is connected to that. Then you look at the advent of photography, your, your field, uh, building on the revolution in terms of how people looked at things at the Renaissance, where everything became about illusion, creating illusions of space, thinking that through one perspective, one lens, you can capture reality, which is absolute nonsense because when we look, when we see, we see from two points at the same time. Our brain is sophisticated. I, you know, if I've got a mug, I know it's a mug. I see a mug, not because I've got it in a moment, like a photograph, but because I'm seeing it in a continuum. And the medieval artist understood this, that there wasn't a sort of captured moment that was true there was a lived experience which could be conveyed. So we end up in the 20th century with all sorts of destructive elements to that profound understanding of the Middle Ages. So when it comes to trying to recreate or create newly art for those spaces, we're really, really deeply in ignorance. And that's especially true of the clergy. Because most of them, I'd be, one of the things I used to do when I was in Bethlehem, we'd have groups of you know priests and bishops and lay people come, and they'd all go, oh, we love icons and talk about icon writing, and oh, we all know about this. And they really loved them, and that was great. But I used to say to the bishops, how, how many um, hours training do you give your clergy in religious art in general, let alone the art of the liturgy? one hour maybe in a seven-year course. How much training in scripture? Oh, you know, terms. I said, this is your problem, because according to the teaching of the church, one of the segment, Seventh Ecumenical Council, it said that the icon and the scripture are of equal importance. Yeah, you're touching on something that, like, it's. there's also this modern issue in the fine arts world where – we're supposed to be making these beautiful pieces of art. So mm -hmm. let's imagine we're doing like a painting or whatever kind of thing. And we are also expected to write artist statements, mm -hmm. make titles, like explain our work, give it context, do all this kind of stuff. And, and it's very interesting that you're bringing this up because this is a, an interesting issue that I run into a lot where I often find that like – as an artist, we have chosen our artistic medium as a way of expression because we're probably very bad at one of these other methods, i.e. writing. Okay. And yet these days we're expected to then have to write about mm. our works. And I'm just very 
turned off by this contemporary interest and sort of push and need for not only being able to, uh, you know, eloquently and craftsmanshiply and all this kind of express yourself through your artistic method that you've chosen, but then also have to write about Mm. it. And this balancing act of the text and image in the history of of iconography, I find sort of uh, nice and almost pleasant because it's like, oh, okay, so this is not just a contemporary issue. This is a longstanding issue. Yeah. I think one of the interesting it's very interesting for me seeing how icons work as simply cultural objects, like any piece of art. So you put it alongside a, a photograph and how people see, and then begin to try and unravel how people understand perspective and how you represent that when people talk about truth and what's the role of the visual image in terms of relationship to truth. So you've got attempts by people, you know, like Picasso and people like that to try to, in reaction really to the photographic sense of realism, to say, but an artist, I'm seeing something more. How do I express that? Now, as a photographer, you probably say, hey, there's a debate to be had about this because I'm seeing something and blah, 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 blah. But it, in, say, like cubism and this sort of thing, you know, the multi-perspective sort of thing, uh, iconography does that. It's been doing it for 1,500 years. And, in fact, it's very interesting that I think there's, there's lots of anecdotes about some of those great artists at the beginning of the 20th century suddenly discovering iconography and these strange enigmatic representations and 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 being influenced by that because there was something that the icon was seeing that we weren't able to comprehend or reproduce of our own experience now especially the transcendent in the present oh yeah i I remember art history courses where our professor would show us icons and say like talk about how the perspective in the image changed. So like whether it was the background, it would be a certain perspective, whether it was foreground, it'd be a very different perspective. And so like literally it was almost like they were like looking at the same experience from different ways. And And I remember seeing that and I was just like, I can't tell if they did that intentionally or if that was a mistake, but either way, it was very interesting. No, it's deliberate, absolutely deliberate. And I think especially if you, you know, there's quite a lot of studies about how Byzantines understood seeing like color, for example, fascinating. And a lot of modern iconographers don't have this sort of background. Again, it, it, it means that they end up with some superstitious, basically, understanding rather than informed. The way in which the Byzantines understood seeing was that color was less important than luminosity. Because when you were painting, certainly spiritual art, it was about light divine light it was the way light transfigures space so in the icon there are no shadows or very minimal shadows just to give form it's not a, the opposite of that would be um, a caravaggio for example with the dramatic form iconography has a very shallow shadow base it's about light and how light works cordis for example i mentioned before has just written a book all about painting the light and the sort of genius of the Byzantine approach is all about how you paint with light. 
That's fascinating. You know, just to take it all apart and see it as an actual art form. When you see that, then the fact that it's transcendent and it's putting you in touch with these transcendent realities, it makes it a very, very powerful medium. Very, very powerful even just on the artistic level, if you let it be art. Once you hide it away into some sort of religious, esoteric enclave, you, you, you've lost the point. You know, it's it's not there as some sort of fetishic sort of Christian thing, you know. It's there because it's a proclamation of the gospel, which is for all. Well, you brought up about light and stuff, and there's my... I know the, a little bit about the history, but basically, like when they were originally done, they were always put with candles lit sure. them and, and and created the you know the reflections and, mm. and the shadows and all this kind of stuff from the flickering of the candlelight. Now, I mean, I understand from a, a preservationist sort of perspective why we don't do that very much anymore, because of course there's the the, the danger of well bursting into flames, but just also the soot and all the yeah. other stuff too. But like. Is it still like, like, is it like, I guess, looking at them these days under our, you know, ambient light and our light sources that we use versus the candlelight, is that diminishing the experience in any way? Like, or should we be still be looking at them with mm. candlelight? That is a really good question. Again, you got some good questions here. Thank you. I think, again, it's it's the same question in a way when we say about what well, should it be in a church, should it be in a museum? You know, do you try to to put it in its the context it was intended for to see it as it was intended to be seen? Correct. And there are advantages and disadvantages to to keeping it in its original location. So, for example, you just have candlelight. And it's, it's probably, you know, people can't see it. And actually, a lot of, of religious art was, was actually painted with the assumption it wasn't going to be examined in detail. You think of a cathedral with all that stained glass. You know, and the detail. I remember um, at Litchfield Cathedral talking to, to the librarian, and, and there was a St. Chad Gospel there with all that wonderful Celtic decoration. And, you know, there's things even with a with a magnifying glass, it's hard to see. And the principle was only God would see it, but it still therefore needed to be perfect because this wasn't about showing off my skill to my contemporaries, not I'm a great artist. It's I'm doing something for the praise of God. comes back to this thing about that only the best is good enough. So in iconography, this is not about other people even seeing. This is what God sees. And okay, so he sees the heart, and that's important. But he also sees in the minutest detail. We're not into cutting corners and stuff. It's So even if this icon was you know, at the ceiling of a cathedral, it yeah. still should be done with the minutest of details and all that. Well, it should be consistently true. So, it, I mean, you're not going to, you don't have to. I don't think there is a principle of, you know, oh, well, it's all got to be in absolute detail. There's no icon union that has, like, rules and regulations? <laughs> there aren't rules and regulations. I mean, people have this thing, oh, there's the canons and all this sort of stuff, but there really aren't. I mean, you ask an orthodox for the book. Where's the book? 
And they they might come up with some 17th century sort of manuals, but there's no consistency. There really isn't. And when we talk about the tradition in iconography, we're actually talking about the Christian faith, about the scriptures, about the creeds, about the teaching of the fathers. This is what has to be incorporated in the icon and the liturgy and how it fits within that. And there are conventions, there are assumptions, but even, for example, the meaning of the colors of Jesus' robe, which you'd think would be fairly standard. You'll find some box saying the red represents the divinity, some saying it represents the humanity. Now, you can make an argument about it, and I know where I stand. But the fact that there is even, and, in, and these are in some really authoritative books, a debate. Well, but there, there is some saying that it's not red, also it should be a different color completely. Well, yeah, there's there's a range of of, of of opinion, but even something like you know the convention that Jesus has this inner red robe and a blue outer robe, you would think that if there is this book of canons that they seem to invoke, that there would somewhere it's written and it's been passed by every single local Orthodox council or been received and all this, sort of, and it isn't. It's very ad hoc. It's very localized. Even, for example, the debate about how you represent the Holy Trinity, uh, which is an important one. You know, there's one council which definitively said Rublev's icon of the Trinity is is the only acceptable model, but that was in Moscow, and it was a local council. So you can't sort of say this is universal. And if you go to the Greek Orthodox Church, you'll find lots of icons where you've got you know two people sat on the throne and the and a dove for example now oh but this isn't canonical what do you mean it's not canonical it it's it's there it's universally accepted in 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 this particular part of even the orthodox church you might want to say as i would say this is not right because you know how can you represent god the father the whole point is Jesus is the icon of the Father. You know, he is the visual manifestation of the Father in in matter and creation. So there is a really, really good argument to say we shouldn't be doing that, that that's not the best way to do this. But to sort of invoke these mythical canons as though the Orthodox world speaks like the Roman Curia is it's, it's farcical. You know, it's a sort of sort of Western papalism infecting a sort of orthodox mentality, but the orthodox themselves quite like doing it. So it gets a bit a bit confusing at times. And I think for, for people who aren't immersed in this world, it can become quite intimidating. And, you know, it there are real things about iconography that you do. You, know, you can see I have quite strong opinions about a lot of this this sort of stuff. And, you know, but there are reasons for it, and I will argue those reasons. But because it's so important and therefore demands this sort of level of real serious thinking, a lot of people who are on the fringes of iconography can feel quite intimidated by that. And people who are on, on, a, on quite a level with iconography but haven't got this sort of background or, or ability to to wrestle with these issues will therefore fall into well this is the author the art of the orthodox church this is how we do it you have to do it just the way we have done it and that is i understand it and and it's important that 
basically people are very conservative in the way in which they use this medium because this is the stuff that opens heaven on earth. It's not just toy box. This is profoundly important. And you shouldn't start playing games with this if you don't have a basic idea of, of what you're doing. It's a bit like letting kids loose on a firework factory. You know, to let them loose with a, with, a, with a cigarette lighter and say, go light what you want. The whole thing goes up and can be very distressing and, and, and really painful for those for whom icons are really real a very important part of their spiritual life. So, you know, you have to be very respectful of the power that these images have attained in the lived life of people's faith. And you can't just indulge your whims without being aware of the consequences for some people of great pain. So, you know, it, it, it's a responsibility. Okay, great. I want you to go back to the the candle light versus normal like contemporary light later because you just brought up an interesting topic, which is the idea of like, is there some position by the people who do them or or are the arbiters of good taste within the icon field of like artists who use iconic techniques? Mm -hmm. Uh, for non-religious non or iconic purposes? Like, does that end up being some sort of blasphemous thing? Uh, oh. When it's, you know, not done for the quote-unquote, like, in intended purposes. Mm. Well, this is this dangerous impact bit. So I'll give you an example. There's an American lady who's very religious, um, but has a very pantheistic inclusive Episcopalian type of, of, of religious viewpoint. Just to be clear, my father's an Episcopal reverend. Okay. But, you know, the Episcopal church is, is, is avowed. Very liberal. So they, they'd be proud of that. And she produced this iconostasis of peace. Now, the language of iconography, the style, the whole thing is about proclaiming that Christ is as the church believes him to be, which is true God and true man. Where you put, when you do an icon, there is a very important hierarchy. So, you know, it's a hierarchy of form within each individual icon. So the most important will, will dominate the composition. But it's also true in how it's arranged in the church. So, you know, the dome has the Pantocrator on it. it, doesn't have St. Peter because it is about Christ being the Lord of all and being all over the earth, et cetera. So, it's so funny. Sorry, I'm, I'm nodding my head as though I understand everything you're saying, which I do not, but I'm just going to let you keep going. Okay. So she produced this iconostasis for peace. She had an icon of Jesus, Pantocrator, where he would be on a regular iconostasis in a Greek Orthodox church. She also had at the same level the Prophet Muhammad and various other sort of human luminaries. And then on the next tier, she had the Ashtaroth, which are the pagan gods from the Old Testament, etc., etc. I felt physically sick because this was blasphemy of a real sort. She didn't intend it to be, 
but it was because you were actually taking the the, the gospel, I mean, the, the Old Testament, the New Testament, everything that it believes and blowing it apart. Let alone, you know, for a Muslim to represent Muhammad is blasphemy. And here you are making him equal to Jesus, which offends Christians, and representing him in a in a English in a, in a in a Christian religion profoundly religious format as a as they would the Muslim would see an, an image an idol an offense to God I mean at every level what the heck was she doing it was the typical sort of cultural blindness I've got my wonderful spiritual insight and I'm just running with this because I'm inspired um and you know if that that's just self-indulgence in my book and it's deeply unchristian it's deeply unloving because you're taking something precious and trashing it and if you do that i'm sorry but there is a responsibility to all of us but say as a photographer yeah there's a thing in britain at the moment of police taking photographs at crime scenes of people who've been killed and sharing those photographs on social media or with their friends on the phone. That is offensive and it's wrong. And actually, I think you can be prosecuted in Britain for it now. I was going to say, there should be laws against that. Right. Well, this is as offensive. Just because it's visual and religious, we shouldn't say, oh, well, you could be able to do whatever you want. You have to be show respect and sensitivity for how you use other people's stuff, whether it's their dead bodies or their religious beliefs or their, their art forms. You have to be respectful. Right. I mean, well, when I'm thinking about this like blasphemous idea, I'm even thinking of like, I don't know, like you threw out cubism earlier. So like, what if a contemporary artist were to do like a cubist interpretation of an icon? So it has no visual representation, let's say, of a human form, mm. but yet that's their form of expression of the human form. So like, I guess it's like how far away from the source work, source material, source mm. idea does it need to be to become blasphemous or, or inappropriate to be even use the term icons? I think it's not about distance from. I think it's about what it's actually, you know, are you going against the belief system? So, for example, you know, you're making art to make a statement. So you take something sacred, like uh, the Piss Christ, for example. I knew that was going to come up. Yeah. Right. You know, artists love to be controversial. They will use that which is sacred to us to make their own statement that's a that's a that's a debate that's democracy that's self-expression all that stuff i'm coming at it from a slightly different angle you know what you put in an art gallery with my art okay but if you say this is your art like this is an iconostasis for peace with icons and you represent something which is against the very foundations of the faith which this art is there to proclaim, then I'm sorry, you're out of order. And that's not acceptable. It's disrespectful. And, you know, you just shouldn't do it. Sorry. 
fair enough. But okay, now also I know that you do prints, and of course yeah. I've seen prints. I probably even owned like posters of icons in my life as well. So like, how does that sort of ride into it? Because I mean, from my understanding, like it's all about the object. It's about the 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 practice of the 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 you know the process of making it and all this kind of stuff. Do is it sort of a right or appropriate to make prints or make posters or anything like this of icons like or well i obviously do so i must think that this is okay so well you might you might still struggle with it so you know how do i get to the point that i'm doing that and are there limits is a fair fair question the sacredness of the icon is the image itself it's not the paint it's not the 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 fact it's even blessed in fact in the early early canons it was explicitly forbidden to bless icons because they were already sacred not because of the holiness of the person who made it but because the form was true it was a true representation of jesus of the apostles of the events of salvation so given that the the medium that you use is of secondary importance there isn't something absolutely integral to using egg tempera i always paint an egg tempera because i find it the most empathetic resonant medium to the to the purpose mosaic would be another possibility. Stained glass would actually be another medium because it's all about light. But I don't have any skill in that, so I don't do it. But illuminated manuscripts and this sort of thing, for example, you can use gouache and, and watercolor. Yeah, okay. There's way in which you can debate what medium really goes to the heart, the core of that resonance that you're trying to get. A print lacks some of those resonances. Okay, but it doesn't lack the true image. I have prints, for example, here on my desk. I've got this one. I've got of of Elijah. Um, this one is Rublev's Trinity. They're little miniature ones. I have them on my desk, and they are icons, and yeah. they work. They're little, yeah, they're little prints mounted on little wooden boards. Exactly. Now. Those are as much a true icon as one that I might paint with my hands. But this is where we get the question of worthiness. So for the church, if the church can afford it, it should commission icons made by human hands, actually something direct. Because if... Um, if we do, it's a complete holistic process. It's a living art form. If you rely on prints because they're cheap and easy, you're not doing it because it's the best. You're doing it because it's what you can get away with. So that wouldn't seem to me to be a noble attitude. But if you're a poor parish and you've got no resources and this is a way to to have beauty within the, the, the building and to enable it to at least basically function, then it's far, far better than just a blank, empty space. 
So I think there's a hierarchy of tools to open up the what's appropriate. I feel that, for example, for many of the people who, who would love to commission icons, I can't afford to commission icons because I charge so little for what I do. But so I, if I, there's an icon that I particularly want, I'll have to paint it myself or I, like you can see, I, I use prints. And I, I, my old teacher, Aidan Hart, he has prints. Um, there are prints of mir there are miracle working icons which are prints you know that have the, the the oil flowing miraculously from them so god obviously doesn't have a problem but because you get into this sort of pious nonsense oh well it's got to be painless because let's think it through let's think it through but continuing on with that sort of train of thought, like I know, like my father does egg tempera, you do egg mm. tempera. What about people who do them with acrylic? Oh, I loathe acrylic, oh, plastic. But yeah, you know, for a lot of people, um, the first thing I'd say is that, you know, for people who are, who are not professional, this is their, their, their hobby. They have to paint with what they can afford. And for a lot of people, painting with egg tempera is impractical and expensive. You have to buy loads of pigment and you can't buy them necessarily in the smaller quantity, et cetera, et cetera. Or getting hold of them is difficult. So that's the first thing. You've got to be practical and realistic. Secondly, you can actually paint with acrylic, with translucent layers and, and this sort of stuff. So it's not impossible. Again, is it a true image? Yes, it's a true image. It's 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 uh, conforming to the to what we expect Jesus to look like. It is Jesus, but is it resonant with all that the icon is when it's slapped on in thick layers as though it's sort of poster paint? No. So it's poorly painted, but it's not. It hasn't affected. Well, actually, no, it can affect how much of a true image it is because they can look just horrible, in which case you keep that at home and that's in your little prayer space and it means something because you've done it and it's an offering of prayer and that's sincere and that's good. But you wouldn't use it in a public place of worship. You know, there is a certain standard of that actually is a beautiful piece of work and it should reach a certain objective standard that in our culture where everything is subjective people find very hard and you know mrs so-and-so has produced this icon and presented it to father and how do you say i'm sorry that's not good enough without hurting her feelings and so for a lot a lot of people they feel well as a christian i need to respect this person's sincerity with which they've done this and we don't have a a language or a philosophy which enables people to understand that actually this isn't good enough in the same way that we're handicapped with that lady doing that restoration work in Spain. You know, somebody should have said to her, boy, that lady will never live that down. No, but what about the priest who allowed it to happen? That, that, yeah, I mean, it's, it's become a thing in and of itself. Yeah. It's now a tourist destination because of its horribleness. <laughs> what, a, what an accolade. 
but you see what I mean. It's it's there's there has to be some sort of cultural way of saying to people, you know, there's certain levels of of craftsmanship which are acceptable. So, for example, you make a chair; it's got to be able to sit. You've got to be able to sit on it. You know, if you've got a table, you've got to be able to put your dinner plate on it, and it doesn't slide off. You know, there's certain criteria that it's got to work by at least. And then there's the aesthetics. You know, if you've got a a formica table which has been battered around and is just sort of plonked up there for the Holy Communion, is that acceptable? Well, in some churches, yeah, yeah, we just throw a cloth over. Yeah, it's not really anything special. It's just a memorial. We can. But as soon as you think this is actually Christ Himself and Calvary on there, it's a different ball game. But we've we've lost, especially in the West, we have lost the ability to have those conversations. It's all about my opinion and father's opinion, what he likes or what he doesn't like is all that matters. And unfortunately, what father likes is often not very good. So it's a double whammy because it's personal personal likes, dislikes, and you're you're disenfranchised from being able to criticize it without seeming uncharitable. And in a Christian context, that's dreadful. You know, it's not because I don't love you and I don't value your your efforts, but you you haven't reached the mark for public worship. And it's it's a very hard thing being able to say that to people. I've had to say it and it and it is not easy. People find it very hard to swallow because they take it really as very personal rejection because they painted these things from the heart. So it's it's really you know hard to 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 handle that in a way that does justice both to the art and to the artist and to the context. I totally understand. I'm a bit of a snob that way too. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. But okay. But going back now to the candlelight versus like artificial light, because. My father, of course, has gifted me many icons over the years, and I've got them. And I always wonder, like, should I be putting them and putting a candle hmm. for them to be really experienced as they are intended, or is it okay? Because I have, like, my we put together an exhibition, and, and we did the entire exhibition, turned off all the lights, and only lit the whole exhibition hmm. by candlelight, and it was a totally different experience mm. seeing the icons in that way and in that style than it was to see them in a well-lit room. And so like, I'm sort of wondering, like, it, you know, do, you know, cause like, I've always been a big fan of like art exhibitions or art being experienced with like great lighting on it. And, you know, intentional lighting, I'd even say just like, mm -hmm. you know, it has a reason and a purpose, whatever its choices. So I'm wondering if, you know, icons should be still to this day experienced in that traditional way, or is it sort of legitimate to see them under not, you know, even, you know, fluorescent lighting, let's say in the worst case scenario. I mean, I don't think it's, it's illegitimate. Um, I mean, who's to say they can't be seen in multiple ways? You know, the point about the icon is it's the image of Christ or the saints. And what you want is to experience the resonance of the presence. One of the things about the icon is, and, and the problem of having it in, our, in an art gallery is it becomes an object to be seen in itself, whereas the essence of the icon is to diminish and to be invisible. 
because it's making present those realities rather than stimulating the imagination about those realities. So, for example, if you think about Renaissance art, it's all about the, the power to evoke imagination, to put yourself, to, to look through a window at a scene in front of you and imagine you are there. In the icon, the reality is there. You just have to discover it. So if you put it in a gallery and you're lighting it to be seen as an object, an art object, in a way you're not really taking it to its destination. And that's okay. You know, it is an art object. As I say, we paint them. But if you really want to understand the, the icon in itself, it should be in a place of prayer and worship. Now, whether that's with bright lighting or subdued lighting, secondary issue. Not That's aesthetics rather than is it good or bad. The integrity of what makes the icon, the icon is the true image of the saint or of Christ. So seeing that image is the process, which is slightly secondary to the art, art itself. And it can take many different forms. It could be at daytime, it could be at nighttime, um, could be a church with floodlight, it could be with candlelight, etc., etc. It could be a church with big windows and no windows. Bum. Oh, seeing an icon being lit by stained glass window, like that's really beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Glad we've got some objective beauty standards coming into this now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I see to me that that's subjective. I believe that that looks beautiful. I can think, imagine other people. But you can that say that, that and I would say most human beings immediately understand what you mean because beauty is a reality that you can perceive, maybe not define or pin down, but we certainly know beautiful things. And we would, as a human race, say that is beauty. That is truly beautiful. People don't buy, you know, beautiful things for lots and lots and lots and lots of money because it's a subjective opinion. They do if they're into that niche market. And that's all about, well, aren't I clever? And I really see this and other people. But, you know, if you're talking about beautiful jewelry, beautiful dress, all that sort of stuff. People pay it because people recognize this as beautiful. It's there, there is a commonality. So I think when it comes to iconography, we should be aspiring to that commonly experienced sense of beauty because we are trying to trans, we're trying to show a transfigured view of reality. And the transfiguration is beautiful around the truth, which is in itself beautiful, but also in the form, which is about taking matter and showing it at its very best. Okay, I have a question, totally random. What kind of relationship do icons have to that like golden rule, the, the 1 to 1.618? Mm. Is there any use or relation to that? The Fabrici cycle, whatever you call it. Fibonacci. Fibonacci, that's it, that's it. I'm of the I'm not a mathematician and I find it really difficult holding numbers in my head. So I put my hands up and say this is an area that I really find difficult, but I am a fairly lone proponent of the view that the use of quite sophisticated geometry was de rigueur in the earliest periods of iconography. And what we are doing as an iconographer, I've just been writing about this for my students next week. 
Okay, hold on a second. I, I'm not sure what the term de rigueur means. Is that good or bad? Uh, de rigueur, it's just like the way things are. Yeah. Okay, great. I'm just sorry. It's, you know, my vocabulary okay. is not that big. Sorry, sorry. My apology. As, a, as an iconographer, I begin by mapping out the space that I will create on. And I do so geometrically this is what i think the the way the the early byzantine artists definitely began and it was all with a straight edge and a, and a and a circle and that was the way you divided up space because you didn't have measurements like centimeters and things so everything was in proportion and if you look at nature the way god has made it that's precisely what you find from the snowflake to the cactus plant to the flower. And there's something that the Byzantines understood about this coming from ancient culture, ancient Greek culture and this sort of stuff, that um, you know, the patterning of, of creation, the, the modality of music, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, was all an expression of one mind that had created order out of chaos. So as a co-creative, I want to create more of that order. I don't want to break it down and make it chaotic. So when I create my icon, I want to take that blank space, that emptiness, and give it form and order. That's a creative, that is the creative process. So geometry is a way of understanding how I can define the space, how I can create a rhythm on its surface that will enable me to create in a way that is harmonious and yet distinctive, that has harmony and unity, and yet presents each facet in its own way. So, yeah, for me, the, the use of geometry is, is, is pretty essential. Iconographers that I know wouldn't necessarily use it in that way, and they might use, for example, just simple shapes like triangles and this sort of stuff to create a basic order and then paint or draw to that. Um, other people, more elaborate and that sort of thing. I'm, I'm convinced that it's certainly there in all the early icons. And um, as I say, I use quite sophisticated tools just seed of life circles within squares this sort of stuff and yet with the modern computer you know you can really do some quite easily use those basic patterns to open up that space to give it definition and then to work to it all right i have one last question and i might we might edit this out right. depending on your answer whether or not you, it's okay um it's I've noticed that it seems like a lot of iconographers that I see these days are masculine of the male persuasion. I don't see a lot of women doing it yet. Like my father, almost all of his students are women, but yet almost everybody who seems to be teaching it or mm. sort of you know standing out in the industry seem to be men. I mean, is there a history of that? Is there a reason for that? Like um, why does it seem like it's predominantly male? I think it may be that the that's not quite accurate. Um, there are in say Russia and places like that, um, and Romania, places like that, Belgium. I can think of women who are 
you know, leading proponents of iconography. Well, my father was taught by a, a woman, right? So that's and that, but yet most of who I see sort of out in the world on the internet yeah. and stuff seem to be very male. male oriented. So I'm just wondering, like, is maybe I'm just not seeing them? So like, is there a good proportion of women working in the field, or am I just getting a skewed vision through Google? I think to be fair, it is more in the professional realm, males. I think because they 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 they've invested the time to make it a profession without distraction. I think it. I don't know why it would. I mean, I do know women who who are incredibly good iconographers and certainly do teach courses and that sort of stuff. But I think the because maybe it's something to do. I don't know. I'm a bit off beam this, but it might be something to do with the fact that. Iconography is still just being rediscovered as an intellectual at an intellectual level, and that sort of theorizing is a more male thing traditionally. That not exclusively by any means, but it tends to be much more. You know, women are much more down to earth and practical. So if you look at the people doing iconography, many of the women are really, really very, very good painterly fine painting men are a bit more loose a little, little bit more as a whole and i think that reflects a, a certain like the precision of a lot of female iconographers you know the the i have an icon from a, a convent in the ukraine you know all nuns you know knocking icons out almost factory like and one does one bit, one does the other, does the other. You haven't got a sort of one person who's really being creative in all of that. So it may be that there's a certain feminine willingness to be to work in that sort of way, whether it's just on details, it's on the practicality, it's on making, rather than the theory. And the, therefore, the development of this world. Now, there are a lot of women who teach iconography, a lot of women who teach iconography. But for whatever reasons, their work in itself hasn't somehow hit a particular note that people have taken notice of. Or they haven't gone out and done something with their iconography. I mean, I'm known because of what I did in Bethlehem, for example. Aidan Hart was a monk who then has got married, but he's he's sort of written a book. He's, you know, really doing the intellectual thing, thinking through what iconography is and really putting it out there. And when I think of like some of the people who who are pushing iconography, they tend to be male. Now not all, by any means. And um, there's a, a lady in uh, in Belgium who's is is very strong in what she writes. Comes from a Russian background and is very critical of people like Uspensky and people like that. But you know, they they are fewer and far between. Um, there's some in Russian and that sort of stuff. But it it is true, actually. It is true that, and as you say, most participants are, are women. Well, it's just an interesting thing because, like, I'm a photography 
professor. And so like as a professor, mo- a majority of my students are women, yet in most of the photographic industry, mm. it's predominantly male. So it's it, it's the same sort of characteristic. So like I'm just wondering if there was sort of, you know, because like I'm thinking through like the historical patriarchy of the church and I'm wondering if there's some relationship yeah. to that even kind of thing. So maybe I'm just overthinking it. Well, it'd be nice to to be able to sort of dress it up with that but honestly as you say in the in the photographic industry and i think when it comes to it you know in terms of like who gets commissioned to do what who gets that profile you know that might be a matter of 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 presumption rather than prejudice you know who do you go to you know those are the people who got but if you went on the internet who are the people that you'd see and it's a free free for all now. So there's no reason why you wouldn't be seeing women out there. It's up to them to be out there and doing it. So maybe it's it's I think I remember Jermaine Greer pointing out that, you know, if you look at the prison population, you know, men are up there, women very few. But likewise, if you look at those who 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 are geniuses in their fields, men are out there and women up women occupying the centric ground, the the the, the very down-to-earth practical realism that, you know, holds things together. And men tend to be more at the, the extremes. Now, that's Jermaine Greer. She's a feminist. So I'm not, I don't, don't think that is as a patriarchal, prejudicial thing. But men and women are different and we bring different things to the table. And maybe this is an example of that. But it may also to do with the fact of who works, who's retired, who, you know, who likes to go to a pub and have a drink in an evening? You know, that's a free choice. And it's mostly men who do that. Women tend not to do that. Uh, they do other things. Men and women are different. And maybe this is just one of those expressions of that difference. I, I don't know. Interesting question. All right. Have any last things you want to say or any sort of advice you want to give? Not really, except sign up for my course if you're interested. That's one way of doing it. It's all online, so you can, you can follow it at your, your will, and we have a lovely living community of people. But uh, that's just a that's a cheeky bit of publicity there. But um, no, I'd just like to say thank you for the opportunity to share some thoughts. They've been good questions, and hope it's of some interest to your listeners. Well, thank you very much. And I will be sure to put links to your school on the show notes. Oh, brilliant. Thank you very much for listening to the complete conversation. We would appreciate it if you would share the podcast with your friends, family, co-workers, studio mates, anyone with an interest in the arts and creative endeavors. The building and strengthening of the arts and creative community is at the core of our mission for this podcast. They can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014, the audio was edited by Mickey at Cush Audio Services, and the music was created by Pete Bybee. As we all know, funding and financial support for the arts is incredibly important, so when you have it, you gotta thank it. So, I'd like to thank EEA Grants from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway, They are working together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. And I'd also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Czech Republic and Kunstcentrene i Norge in Norway.
Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com.